Hi, this is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and welcome to another episode of the Silmarillion Seminar. Hi, welcome to episode 13 of the Silmarillion Seminar. My name is Chris Stevens for the Tolkien Professor and my fellow Silmarillionaires. Tonight's episode is chapter 12 of the Silmarillion entitled, Of Men. One title that's been suggested for this episode is Of Men, the Night Fearers, and Other Elvish Hang-Ups. Without further delay, let's join the seminar. Okay, good evening, everybody. We can start here. I think, uh, Mike, you had uh, a question about the name. Um, Morgoth is here called in one place Morgoth Bauglir, uh, B-A-U-G-L-I-R. That means the constrainer, like the one who constrains, um, which I think sort of essentially seems to be referring to you know, like him as the keeper of prisoners and the keeper of slaves. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that's the, that's the literal translation of Bauglir, the one who, the one who constrains, um, which is a little bit odd. Uh, uh, that is, I, it's not exactly the most, uh, uh, vile insult I can imagine throwing at Morgoth. Um, but uh but that is uh that is sort of the nicknames the the nickname that he is given uh, or rather the the additional name um and you can see the i i mentioned insult because in times when it is used it tends to be used as if insultingly that is when someone is speaking very scathingly uh of morgoth they will often call him morgoth bauglier um which sounds really good. I mean, <laughs> it sounds really insulting, um, but uh, uh, but we don't actually. It, it's the, the, its meaning is is sort of not quite as uh, as uh, obviously insulting as perhaps we could wish. Um, but anyway, okay. Let's see. The uh, second question that sh- uh, that you guys had was uh, Chris. The bodies of the elves being more like those of men in the old days. Um, you wanna you wanna go ahead and start that one? I really just thought about that on the spur of the moment, so I may not have a coherent question. But I was thinking of uh, Glorfindel in the time of the Lord of the Rings versus uh, um, the elves in the Elder Days. Um, I, I guess I never I always pictured him being just as strong or as uh, powerful. I don't envision him having been consumed from within and and being less than uh, um, either the men. Or the elves of the elder days, and I've um, I just want to get anybody else's thoughts on that and what's what's going on, or what uh, maybe not enough time has passed as far as the the theoretical writer of this is saying. Um, uh, let me let me find it here. Yes, yeah, those that days pass- there were yeah. more go ahead, go ahead. and uh, maybe it's almost like they're sounding like they're talking in the theoretical present day about the elves back in in the, the first age. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um yeah, no, we might as well read uh read that bit a bit. Um Immortal were the elves, and their wisdom waxed from age to age, and no sickness nor pestilence brought death to them. Their bodies indeed were of the stuff of earth, and could be destroyed, and in those days they were more like to the bodies of men, since they had not so long been inhabited by the fire of their spirit, which consumes them from within in the courses of time. Um yeah, so I mean that's that's the uh that's definitely the 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 sort of the passage in question here. Uh, a couple of you had some thoughts on that, Laura. What were you thinking? Yeah, I was just going to say that uh, 
I thought the same thing that um, that Chris did when I read that. It it's almost as if the author was in the present day, which I thought was really interesting for this book, supposedly written um, at about the time of the Lord of the Rings. Why would they talk be talking about elves sort of being shadows, or because in the Lord of the Rings, they're definitely not shadows. Yeah, no, I mean, that is a really good point. Uh, it is, there's no question that here, and there are not that many points like this, that is, the narrative of the Silmarillion tends to stay reasonably close. To, I mean, we know that we're hearing these things told you know, and written down long, long after the fact, of course. There's not like an illusion that we're getting a, you know, a, a contemporary account exactly. But, but you're right, this is one which sort of brings in explicitly um, a later and presumably a third age perspective on this, um, but only really by implication. Um, in those days, they were more like to the bodies of men. With the implication, they're not so much anymore. And uh, I think here we can see, well... Tolkien's ideas on this sort of changed over time. Way back at the very beginning, um, uh, those of you, I, I made a big deal of this in um, my Tolkien course that I taught at the college last year, um, which is the, the way that the idea of fairies and elves uh, came over time post-Renaissance to be, you know, sort of increasingly the tiny little diminutive creatures. Uh, and I talked a lot about Tolkien's objection to this concept of, of fairies um, in on fairy stories when he was complaining about the whole, you know, the, the, the little uh, the little Victorian fairies which, you know, disappear into cowslips and stuff like that. Um, and how much he objected to that and, uh, you know, how one of the things that he does um uh that Tolkien does with his elves uh you know in the Lord of the Rings is basically to kind of reennoble um the idea of elves and fairies though he ended up sort of ditching the use of the word fairies when he first wrote these stories he didn't use the word elf almost at all he he used the word fairy most of the time but he clearly like, he knew that if he did that he would be fighting against these associations all the time so he used the word elf instead but anyway um the uh, I'm getting distracted now. Okay, so he objected to this whole, like, small, tiny little fairy thing um, and was was moving against that. But in his original conceptions, way back, you know, when he was, when Tolkien was in his teens and 20s, he did not, he did not, he had not yet really distanced himself in that way. This conviction of his, um, this sort of irritation of his with this, uh, with this tradition of tiny little winged fairies is a later, like, it, it grows on him over his life. At, towards the beginning of his life, life, many of his early poems, um, for instance, contain references to fairies which are clearly tiny little cowslip fairies. Um, so he himself wrote in that mode, and he actually conceived in the Lost Tales, he makes reference to the fact that um, that the elves, the fairies, are over time eventually going to become the tiny little fairies uh, of the Victorian world, um, you know, of really of the post-Renaissance world. And um, so he... Go ahead. Sorry. That's kind of what struck. Kind of what struck me about the 
the tone of it, is, as Laura also uh, spoke about, is that it doesn't sound like a third age perspective in um, in, in this tone. It sounds, again, more like a contemporary or a, a modern looking back. Someone whose nose of the elves now being little tiny fairy creatures, maybe, and, uh, um, and is making a comparison in that way rather than from third age to first age elves. Yeah, and I'm tempted to call this, uh, in a sense, um, a... Well, I was going to say a Christopher Tolkienism, but that sounds unfair. What I mean is, um, I think that I suspect that this passage is one of those which is really a big editorial challenge for Christopher Tolkien, because it's a, yes. it's this is a relic of one of those old passages where he was thinking explicitly in those ways. Because, of course, you know, as we know and I've talked about before, um, you know, Middle Earth and Beleriand were supposed to have been in his initial conception, were to have been our world and England and Europe of long ago, and so therefore. Um, he was explicitly connecting it not just to the Third Age, um, which he had not really worked out very well. Uh, the Third Age didn't exactly exist yet when he was first writing these stories, um, but rather to th- that bridge to the modern age. And so when he originally said in the Book of Lost Tales that they used to be of human stature, what he meant was not tiny, but, you know, full size. They were, you know, six, you know, between five and seven feet tall, not like three inches tall, and that they have dwindled over time until they have become only inches tall. Now, Christopher Tolkien is clearly using here, obviously the Silmarillion is being written, um, is being put together in the post-Lord of the Rings, you know, phase of Tolkien's life. So this is reflecting many of his later thoughts, though not all of his last thoughts. So when Christopher Tolkien is putting together the Silmarillion to publish it after Tolkien's death, he's bringing together stuff, texts from all over the place, some passages which were relics of earlier times, some, uh, some, uh, some issues, some some passages which he had changed, some which didn't really all fit together. I mean, Tolkien hadn't cleaned all this stuff up. Um, now, I think that this passage, this is not an argument to say that this passage is simply a contradiction, that it doesn't fit at all. It does fit. And if you think about the way especially people like Goadriel talk about fading and all of that, fading is happening to the elves in the Third Age. They are yeah. diminishing. Not necessarily getting shorter, but they're but they're but they're diminishing. They will become a woodland folk. They will become, you know, smaller and lesser creatures. Not necessarily, uh, you know, they're not necessarily going to turn into puck from Midsummer Night's Dream, um, which they were going to originally, but. But they are going to to fade now. That's that's sort of the his new sense of uh, you know the the new way that he talks about what's going to happen to them over time. So well, that makes that makes sense. Yeah, and, and of course we've talked about this before. The difficulty of comparing segments of the Silmarillion to the to the later works, and I would never criticize Christopher Tolkien for anything that he did in the original publication, just because he didn't have the uh, the benefit of all the material we have available to us today to, to put this put something maybe a little bit more coherent together. But, yeah, well, it's uh, hard. Anyway. I mean, it's yeah. I mean, this this is the stuff that he's been developing over time too. I mean, you can see throughout the history of Middle Earth series as he goes through and puts all the papers in order and develops all of the commentaries on the entire evolution 
resolution of the story. There are times in the history of Middle Earth series where he explicitly says, "Okay, you know, like if I were doing the Silmarillion all over again, I'd do this bit differently." Um, you know, or I regret having changed this, or I regret having having. Uh, you know, I mean, the, there are some moments, not not a whole lot, but there are a few times where you can see him doing that. Um, so it certainly is uh, likely that if uh, you know if you know if things were different and Christopher were now putting together the Silmarillion, it probably wouldn't look exactly the way that it does here. But um, but again, nevertheless, I do think that it still works. And 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 an interesting thing also to be taken from this passage is not only the the fading business. Um, uh, that is, that in those days their bodies were more like to the bodies of men. But the business about since they had not so long been inhabited by the fire of their spirit, um, which consumes them from within, within the courses of time. Um, and here I, I come back to that Goadriel point, that, or uh, Glorfindel, rather, observation. Um, Glorfindel's spirit, when Frodo sees Glorfindel's spirit uh, on the banks of the river Bruinen, um, and his spirit is you know this sh- you know radiant white shining like a flame we can see his spirit uh like a flame um and we're told gandalf that is explains to frodo when he wakes up that th- that it's it looks like that glorfindel's spirit looks like that because he's caliquendi um and you know he 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 is he has a different relationship with, like, his body and spirit have a kind of a different relationship than, um, than the one that, uh, uh, that even other elves, uh, the Moriquendi have, yeah. Um, because Gorfindel is, is an Oldor. He comes from Valinor. So, um. Well, one last point I wanted to say, the, the whole idea of the, the fire of their spirit consuming them from within, to me, that, that, idea kind of blends well with the idea of fading yeah um that uh, their their bodies kind of just burn away or fade away over time i mean just i mean i'm stretching the metaphor a little bit but uh, the, the, at least for me that uh, the image that that creates of kind of go hand in hand yeah and i mean that, that idea of them being consumed as if uh as if the the spirits and the bodies of elves don't really fit very well together. You know, I mean, it's almost as if it, 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 it opens up the possibility of imagining a kind of intrinsic, you know, a kind of uh, innate conflict between the body and spirit of the elves if this, if 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 their body can't really hold their spirits, which I think is a really interesting. This is a really interesting concept, and I'm not sure that I fully understand it or that it's really fully developed here, but it's really intriguing. I think. Um, and it's kind of odd since the elves have to stay in Ea that their bodies would would be subject to uh, <coughs> falling apart. You know? uh, whereas men, they're they're not their bodies are supposed to fall apart because their spirits are supposed to go away. So right. it is kind of odd in, the, in that context. And I'll shut up for a while. <laughs> that's okay. No, that's good. Uh, Joe, you wanted to make a point, I think, a second ago. Uh, no, yeah, I was just going to ask. Uh, what do you think was the purpose of? Their their uh, spirits being able to consume their bodies like not necessarily quickly but over time. I mean, especially if they weren't going to die. I mean, I just didn't know what the connection would have been. Why uh, everyone might have done that? Like, what was the thinking behind that? Maybe even though their bodies wouldn't be there, their spirits would still be there for the final like uh, battle in the end, the music. Or I wasn't sure. Well, th- they can get new bodies. Um, Glorfindel being the primary example of this, since we're already talking about him. Um, 
I mean, we will meet Glorfindel later on, and he will die. And we will, we he will die in the narrative later on. Uh, you know, uh, several chapters from now, um, and he is the same Glorfindel that we meet in the Fellowship of the Ring. Um, so he he is sort of the the primary example. Elves' spirits over time can um, they they can when their bodies die and their spirits go to the halls of Mandos, um, they can eventually they can be permitted uh to get a new body again so um you know that is that is possible this you know we we're, we're told that that does and can happen this came up remember briefly when we were uh talking about the awkwardness of finway's second marriage in this regard um but um but yeah so 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 in that way that you know the the bodies and spirits are not sort of attuned together but i think uh, you know remember this passage about the fire of their spirits consuming the bodies from within uh when we get to the death of feanor which will happen pretty soon um so uh and we shouldn't talk about that in too much detail now because we haven't gotten there yet but i just want to kind of note that because uh we will definitely want to come back to that um okay um any other, uh, Mike? I think you had wanted to say something before about this passage. The uh, the relationship between the the uh, the fire of their spirits and fading. I put in my margin the final paragraph that mentioned the elves fading, waning, retreating to the woods and the caves and becoming as shadows. I put in the margin there. That reminded me of the elven king in the Hobbit. I don't know if that's on point or not. Um. Okay. Wait. Uh, explain that a little bit more. How did it remind you of the elven king? Um. Well, just the paragraph that describes how, in the later times, the elves began to retreat. They took to the moonlight, to the woods, to the caves, becoming as shadows and memories. And so the way that the elves and the elven king are depicted in The in the Hobbit seemed quite a lot like that, as opposed to maybe how they existed in earlier periods. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that that's, uh, that certainly is fair in a sense, you could say that uh in with the elves of Mirkwood we get a kind of uh transitional uh, state that is you know of 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 the elves they are they are definitely a couple pegs down um from uh from 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 the Noldor obviously they are a, they are the the closest parallel, of course, um, between the elven with the elven king is Thingol. Of course, I mean, you know the elven king and the elves of Mirkwood are a lot like Thingol and the elves of Doriath. In fact, the halls of the elven king are almost exactly like Menegroth. It's like you know little sort of the junior Menegroth over there uh, in Mirkwood. And um, there's no Melian though, absolutely no Melian figure. That's the chief difference. Um, in fact. Um, I mean, I should mention, uh, John Ratliff in The History of the Hobbit has, uh, uh, you know, he expands for quite a while on his theory that basically the Elven King of Mirkwood originally was, was, what actually was Thingol. Um, there are some, there's some evidence in the early drafts that basically the world that he was considering um, in the Hobbit, since he he was already working on the Silmarillion stuff, and he, he was sort of assuming that the Silmarillion stuff was never going to get published, that when he was writing the Hobbit, he uh, was basically setting the Hobbit uh, in the Silmarillion world, though he wasn't explaining all this and he wasn't giving all the Silmarillion backstory because again he assumed that was going to be irrelevant and nobody would ever care, but um, he he 
so he incorporates this stuff and he doesn't give them names and um and but but it's uh it, it's it, you know, the implications are um the, you know at least possible that he was certainly associating him with 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 Thingol whether or not he actually envisioned him as Thingol himself initially he certainly doesn't do that later on when he of course he'll go on to give him a different name in history um but uh, but I, the passage uh the passage that I am um the passage that I'm thinking of in uh, in in connection with your observation there, Mike, in the Hobbit. I'm trying to find the passage in the Hobbit, which I, and I'm whenever I'm trying to find something very quickly, I'm rarely able to. Uh, but anyway, the passage uh, being when in the Hobbit when he says that you know that basically these these you know these elves you know if they had a fault it was distrust of strangers but elves they were and remain that is good people um that is we can see they 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 are still noble they are still great they but they're clearly lower than the elves of old and the elven king uh in the hobbit is a little bit self-conscious that he doesn't have quite so great a hoard of treasure as the legendary elven kings of old um and so he that's one of the reasons he wants to get more um so anyway, uh, I, I, I do think that there is there is sort of an interesting connection there, and of course, in in that light, also we get uh, we get the Avari returning in this chapter, which we haven't seen or thought about in a long time, um, and that was interesting to see that they are still there, and also that they, although you know they are called. You know, you know, although they are they are dark elves and they are the unwilling and they are the wild elves and everything, um, one might be tempted to sort of think of them not being good people. You know that they have become savage in the wilderness and everything, um, but they seem to be quite. They certainly, compared to the first humans, are very wise and benevolent and teachers and uh, and seem kind and everything. So, um, you know, the Avari actually still still seem to be good people, uh, which I think is actually kind of interesting and easy to forget about. Um, but uh, so anyway, so that's that's I think definitely pretty cool. Okay, let's see. Uh, j- uh, j- let's see. Let's start. Let's see, Jason. Um, Jason, you had a question about the Valar and their relationship with men. Yes, I thought it was interesting that the Valar do very little to try to communicate uh, with the men. It says that they try to send the messages through the water and the men can't understand it. And so there's, it's like the Valar just give up almost. Uh, and of course, when the elves awoke, there was a lot of uh, advance, advances. You know, Orome goes and meets them and they have all kinds of communication and they invite them to Valinor and it just seems as though the Valar, either they're not as interested in the men, or uh, they've got a once-bitten-twice-shy attitude after what happened with the elves, or I, I'm interested in, in your thoughts or anybody's thoughts on why there seems to be that distance between the Valar and the men. I think that's a great question. Um, what do people think? Does anybody have any uh, have any thought about that? Anyone want to pitch in? Yeah, Jack, go ahead. I'll jump in. Oh, Dave, sure, go ahead. So we've, we've touched on the fact before, a long time ago, we, we mentioned, speculated that there seemed to be, the elves seemed to have a more, a closer relationship with Valar. Uh, men seemed to have a, uh, um, the, the men um, uh, seemed to have sort of a direct connection to Iluvatar, um, that they, they, they sort of, you know, later on in, um, um, 
Numenor, they build temples to him and they speak about him a lot. Whereas the elves seem, their relationship with him, seem, the Valinor seem to intercede in it. Um, I'm wondering if maybe that, I mean, was that sort of Iluvatar's intention? Like, was that by design? Um, um, I, I don't know if it's a, it seems to be sort of a chicken and an egg problem. Because there's lots of language in this chapter and later ones about how maybe men's um, uh, destinies aren't in the hands of Valar. The, the men are at variance with the Valar, they don't know much about them, they feared them rather than loved them, and I don't know if that's sort of, I mean, is that all caused by the Valar's sort of distance and their their um, um, uh, sort of, uh, their the fact that they don't, you know, intervene directly with the men, or is that sort of by design, Iluvatar intends for the men to not have much of a relationship with them? Yeah, I mean, no, that's, uh, I, I agree with the chicken and egg thing. Um, I mean, certainly on the one hand, it's easy enough to see, given the different natures of elves and men, that the elves are kind of more naturally in more of something like a partnership relationship with the Valar. I mean, of course, they're not operating on the same level, but both of them being, both of them are bound to Arda. Um, you know, the elves live as long as the world goes on. Um, you know, and they're bound to the world, and the Valar are bound to the world uh, by their love to by their love for it. And we're, you know, we're told at the beginning when they descend uh, into Ea, they become bound to it. So, um, so both of them are there. They're like, you know, they're the team. They're going to be seeing this whole world thing through to the end. The elves, not from the beginning, but they will be lasting until the end. Um, Whereas, of course, I mean, the, the the humans are coming and going. It's not like uh, it's not like they're going to be operating together. Not that the elves and and uh, uh, and Valar are operating on the same level by any stretch. But um, but I mean, I think that we can see that. So in that sense, certainly, um, well, a bunch of people want to jump in. Jack, why don't you why don't you go first? Uh, a bit simpler. I think maybe the Valar just burnt out on the elves. <laughs> and and maybe they didn't want to uh, go through the same thing again with men, or or perhaps they realized their mistake with the elves. They interfered too much. They're just taking a completely different approach. Hands well, off. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly, I mean, given the things that we've been seeing and talking about um, with the ways in which the invitation of the elves to Valinor sort of backfires. And I don't just mean by, like, the whole Noldor thing, like, well, clearly, you know, that didn't pan out. But um, but not just that. They were the ways in which it seems l like, it seems that there, the invitation was not necessarily a good idea in the first place, and that the rebellion of the Noldor is only just kind of a confirmation that, you know, that the, basically that a problem had been created by the Valor in the first place. Um, so yeah, no, I mean, I think that that, I think that that's certainly one way to look at it. Not that the Valar's, f I see, I almost said failure to reach out to the men, which suggests that it's a bad idea. Um, but they're not reaching out to the men. They're being hands off is like an act of neglect. You know, they, they don't care about the men. I, I don't think that, at least I don't think we need to think that. I think that we can see it as, you know, like a plan uh, on purpose. Um, and that, it, and that frankly, it might be a better plan. Laura, go ahead. Yeah, uh, a couple things about that. Um, it, it does seem like by the time the, the men come around, the, the Valar have decided that hands-off is the better way to go. But also, I think there's just something different about men the Valar seem to be pretty hands-off with them throughout, almost as if they 
I mean, they they don't even try to connect with the men at all or, or even talk to them the way they do with the elves. Even uh, in The Lord of the Rings, by the time we get to that, the only people that are mentioning any of the Valar are the elves, and the men, um, I mean, the most we ever see them do is maybe bow to the West, but, but that's about it. So it, it's almost like the Valar want to... Um, treat men a different way, maybe because the gift of Iluvatar and the Valor aren't sure what happens to them afterwards, and and they just seem generally almost um, they just they just want to leave them alone and sort of see what happens instead of being uh, more hands on like they are with the elves. Yeah, no, I mean, I think I think that makes a lot of sense. I think it's a really good way to be thinking about it. Um, Elizabeth, go ahead. Yeah, this could be coming from way out in left field, but I was just thinking that. Um, Way back when we were talking about the Cimmerils, we were discussing how no mortal flesh could touch them, and that was that could have been because of the original sin of men. And I was wondering if maybe um, that whole issue of original sin has to do with why the Valar were so hands-off with men. Well, and that is a good point, and it's not really developed here, of course, in this passage, but there are other places where we get this sense... Tolkien never talks about it in detail, even in uh, even in the debate between Finrod and Andreth that I've mentioned before. That uh, uh, that story that is printed in Morgoth's Ring, um, which Tolkien wrote after the Lord of the Rings, even there, which discusses this kind of thing much more explicitly than Tolkien does anywhere else. Um, even there, he doesn't talk about original sin very clearly. Um, but there is this sense, and we will get a couple references later on, to this shadow that lies in the heart of men, which is kind of like the doom of the Noldor. Um, so, so there is there is this sense of that of that's existence. But I don't think that what we're seeing is like a rejection of them by the Valar. Um, but again, though, again, I, one could see a kind of parallel, I think, between the way that the um, the way that the Noldor are that the Valar are hands-off with the Noldor and the way that they're hands-off with men. But I'm not even sure that that's quite fair in the end because with the Noldor, um, the the lack of intervention by the Valar on the part of the Noldor, as we will see, you know, the the Noldor, like things are going to kind of go from bad to worse to worse to worse with the Noldor in Beleriand, um, you know, over the next many centuries. And the Valar are not going to do anything to step in and save them from the suffering that they're, they're going to be undergoing. There, you see, that makes a good deal more sense because they're they're the Noldor are kind of reaping what they sowed. Uh, you know that basically this is this that policy is merely an extension of what Manway said before, which was, hey, you know, if you guys want to go, you can go. Um, but if you go, if you want to separate yourself from us, we'll let you separate yourself from us. But guess what? Then you're going to be separate from us. And that's what we see happening there in the, for the rest of the first age, for almost the whole rest of the first age um, uh, in Beleriand. With the men, it's not quite so clear. That is, we're never told, we're, we're never exactly, um, it's never really explained explicitly that what went on with men back in the days that they no longer remember um was similarly a kind of rebellion so um so we'll see we will when we come across those references we can we can we can talk about this a little bit more then um but uh but i mean it certainly it might be a factor 
Chris, go ahead. Yeah, I was thinking back to, uh, and I'm not remembering exactly, but it's probably back in the Ainulindale. Um, I believe it was said that uh, the vision uh, of the music was taken away before, um, I mean, the Valar no, knew about men coming, but it seemed like they didn't really know much about them at all, uh, and that might be one reason that they were kind of standoffish because they didn't really understand them very well, and that almost maybe Im implies that perhaps that... Uh, um, they had instructions through Manway or whatever that maybe ought, they ought to go softly where men are concerned. Um, I thought that maybe that might be a factor as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, the the passage there, it's in the Ainulindu way, says that the uh, the vision is taken away prior to the to the fulfillment of the dominion of men. Um, and I think that the reference to the dominion of men suggests not the coming of men, but basically the point the the, the arrival of the dominion of men is at the end of the third age. Um, right. That's what you know, like what Aragorn and Gandalf talk about after the War of the Ring when they're up on the mountainside looking for the sapling of the tree. Um, now the time has come of the dominion of men. This is what, you know, Gladriel talks about this, Elrond talks about this. This is the time, you know, the time of the fading of the firstborn is is now there. Um, so that seems to be basically like through through all of the published t t Tolkien texts, that's where the vision stopped. Um, and so the stuff that Tolkien didn't write, the Valar don't know about, <laughs> which is kind of interesting. Um, but... Um, in other words, modern history, essentially, they don't know about. Um, but, but yeah, no, there is also that passage in the Silmar, in, in the Ainulindale, which I can't find, because I can't find and talk about it at the same time. Um, but where the, um, it, when it's talking about the freedom of men, uh, the, the, the free will of men, and how to the elves, like the, the uh, humans kind of remind them of Melkor. Um, so there are ways in which the Valar do seem to be, um, a little bit uncomfortable with men, um, and yeah. there's certainly again, you know, like that the reference I made before to the partnership between elves and and Valar. The elves are also like more akin to the Valar. I mean, they're they're like, you know, they're little cousins, whereas men are are strange to them. I mean, if you look at the you look at the the long list of names, the things that that the elves called men. The inscrutable is one of them, uh, and you do get the impression that it's possible that to the Valar they're a little bit inscrutable too. Um, yeah, Dave, go ahead. Um, what did I want to say about this again? Uh, I just want to reiterate. I I'm I I think it's uh, by design. <clears throat> I think the very fact that men were given the gift of death, uh, that and that, that that no one, not the elves, not the Valar, not anybody, has any idea what happens to them after they die. I think that the and the fact that, as you just mentioned, that uh, the Valar's vision of the 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 sort of the story line or the music of of the world doesn't really doesn't ext it extends right up until the d real dominion of men begins. I think uh, the fact that they're uninvolved has not. Doesn't I mean there might be all these other side reasons, but I think it boils down to that's just the way that Iluvatar meant for things to unfold. That, that there's these two very different kinds of children of Iluvatar, and one of them are sort of inextricably bound to the earth uh, and inextricably bound to the Valar, who are also inextricably bound to the earth. And then you have these other children who are sort of just kind of visiting, who are transient and they're there for a little while, but and they interact with the Valar, and while they're on earth, they kind of have to play by the Valar's uh, or on while they're on Arda, 
they have to play by the Valar's rules, but at the end of the day, they're um, they're sort of you know very very like they just yeah they really are their visitors or aliens or something, and the mm-hmm. Valar you know don't really they just don't have much to do with them that they're not directly involved in in the kind of the narrative that the men will go through. Yeah, yeah, and even even that sense, um, you know, one other one other sort of corollary. Uh, Dave, I think to what you're saying is that there's this sense in which, to some extent, the men are legitimately less subject to the authority of the Valar because they're only briefly living under it. You know, uh, you know, they are destined for somewhere else outside of the of the 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 dominion, the direct dominion of the Valar. You know, they're only they're only just temporary residents. The elves, being bound to the world. They are always going to be working with and subject to the Valar, but you know, no matter what, <laughs> the the Valar only only rule over men for a few decades and then they're done. Um, now, of course, when it comes to one of the Valar, namely Morgoth, this is a good thing. Um, and uh, you know, here I would uh, give a, a a plug again to uh, my student Allison Fishbox. Um, thesis chapter on Turin Turambar here, where she makes this argument, and we talked about it a bit in the conversation that I recorded with her a couple months ago, um, that, you know, death ultimately is their escape from from the dominion of Morgoth, and uh, and there's nothing he can do about it. He wants to think that he has total dominion over them, and they can never escape him, but of course, not only not only is it possible for them to escape him, it's impossible for him to prevent them from escaping him, any of them, because they're all going away. And they're going where he's not going to reach them and where they're no longer subject to him or any of the other of the powers. So, so yeah, I mean, in a, in a, in a real way, their whole relationship to, you know, the, 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 the structure of, of authority and, and rulership in, in Arda is just different than elves, fundamentally. Joe? Yeah, no, um, I was just gonna say it. Uh, this relates to what you were saying. Um, and also, like, it's like they belong to Livatar. Like, you see this later in the Akalabeth that uh, it's like you know that they're meant for him really more than anybody else, which ties into everything you just said. And um, mm-hmm. also, uh, it seems like uh, you know Morgoth mentioned something about uh the men coming and uh how the Valar really like preferred them or they were gonna let them rule over Middle Earth. And uh, it just seemed like maybe if uh, Valor would have said, hey, man, you're allowed to come over, but the elves and she could have you got to stay over there. I didn't know. I mean, this is light, but maybe it could have created some spite. Maybe the elves would have became even more angry against the Valar, and who knows what could have happened. Like I said, I don't think it's very possible, but you never know. Yeah. yeah no, I mean, it's, it's not clear. I mean, another thing, of course, is at least we see later, we know this to be true later on, um, that is in the Third Age, that... When mortals go to Valinor, they burn out. I mean, they die quickly. Um, they can't handle it. They're just, like, constitutionally, they can't handle Valinor. The, you know, what, what makes, you know, the, the, the sort of the glory and the bliss that made the, the, you know, the first generation Eldar into Calaquendi, um, you know, even a lesser version of that, even the post darkening, even the post trees version, uh, of that just, just burns it heals and cleanses but it 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 burns them out they can't take it um 
And so, I mean, would, would things have been different in the first age? Had the fathers of the fathers of men been taken over? Um, you know, would that have, uh, would they have been able to survive? Could they have been increased and improved and strengthened and changed? I don't know, possibly. I mean, we don't really, we're not given any, um, any real data on that. But, uh, but I do think that it's, we, we do have some reason to think that not only is it not uh, necessarily desirable, it's not even really practicable. Um, Joe, go ahead. Now, I was going to say, there is one special case at the end of Calabeth where men do live forever, but they did a bad thing, and that was because Iluvatar decided to do that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's a special case. <laughs> right, 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 exactly, exactly. Um, yep, yep. Okay, let's see some other uh, uh, topics have been sort of piling up here. Um, uh, Joe, actually, uh, let's uh, stick with you here for a second. You were uh, asking about the uh, the elves in Beleriand, uh, the Sindar. I think the, um, uh, you mean Thingol and uh, Kierd and the Shipwright and Company. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, I couldn't remember like the uh, classification that they were named in, really, so I kind of wung it. But um, <laughs> I was just asking, uh, <laughs> yeah, it mentions, you know, Valerian finally turning green, and that means that, you know, boy, there really wasn't much there, but maybe except like rocky stuff and trees, I don't know. I was wondering what they were doing during that. I mean, <laughs> were they just building? And, you know, obviously it must have all been done by torchlight and like the stars. Uh, I just never really imagined them building in the dark until now. It just puts a different perspective on things. Like even the scene where Thingol meets Melian, like, um, you know, I kind of thought of it as daylight at first. And then reading that just kind of switched everything. Wow, it's more of like a darker scene. It was just, it was just different. It just, uh, kind of switched things around and just made me wonder what exactly they may have been doing. Yeah. No, it's a really good question. And it is, it is true that, um, you know, Tolkien, Tolkien's vision of the elves and the the origins of the elves in the first you know huge portion of elvish existence was to be in by starlight only and you know this is the thing interestingly you know when we think back to the sun and moon stuff that we talked about previously um and I was talking then in that episode about the kinds of changes that Tolkien was contemplating later on and how he felt that the you know the the sort of the the astronomical myth um of the sun and moon was kind of absurd and he wanted to change it. And of course, how he wanted to change it, he wanted to make it more consistent, um, with how the world and the solar system really works and really looks like. So, you know, basically the sun was going to have to be there from the beginning, but that's the thing he hated. That although he felt like that was more consistent and it worked better and it was less silly, um, but he could he didn't want to lose the fact that the elves were children of the stars and that they awoke and lived for ages under the stars alone without the sun and so he was basically trying to find a way around that like how can i have the sun be there uh and the solar system be essentially like the way that it is except still have there be only starlight he was trying to sort of find a way to do both of those things um so so yes, it is true that we have to envision all everything that has happened up to this point. Of course, we have the light of the trees in Valinor, but on Middle Earth, everything that has happened up to this point, uh, the, you know, the Sindar, Thingol, and Melian, and Círdan the Shipwright, and the dwarves, and all of them have been have been living in Middle Earth with starlight only, unvarying starlight only. Um, so dark, yes, but I think not necessarily dark. Uh, not dark thematically or dark symbolically. Um, there's a kind of peacefulness to the way that Tolkien describes the dark 
uh, the dark and the starlight. It is lit. There is light. It's starlight. Now, starlight is very dim. We don't think about starlight as being being very bright light. We being used to the sunlight primarily and moonlight second best. Um, when there is no moon and the stars are out on a queer night, when there is no moon, we don't cons- we don't you know, we we can look outside and we're like it's dark out there. You know, you you go outside and your eyes can adjust to it, but it's not very much light. And yet, if that's all you knew, if you didn't have the sun by contrast, um, you would get used to it. It would be light. Now, there's the practical question, of course, uh, Joe, uh, that. Which is like, what were they eating? I mean, if everything, if if stuff wasn't growing, um, like you know, did, did they have like, how could they get food? I don't know the answer to that question, um, and I'm not sure. It's the kind of thing that Tolkien, I think, would have been unlikely not to think about. I mean, he was very detail oriented, and uh, I think definitely would have been thinking about that. But I don't know exactly what the answer is. Um, uh, mushrooms? I don't know. Um, but, um, so yeah, I'm not sure I know the answer to that question, uh, uh, that, that pragmatic question. Um, but definitely, yes, we're supposed to in, be envisioning starlight. Um, let's see, uh, Jordan, you, uh, you, you, you think that there were some exclusions from the list at the end of the chapter? Yeah, um, because at the end of the chapter it lists off the, these are the elves that, got to be both men and elves, but for some reason it says Elrond, but it doesn't Arwen, and doesn't list Eldarion, uh, and I'm curious why they would have been left off. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that basically the simplest answer to that is that it's not quite looking in so much detail forward. That is, um, Elrond is generally the one who is like the link, you know, he is the 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 prime the one who is the primary link um, back to the Elder Days. Goadriel, of course, was there, but he is the sort of the living representative. It's one of the interesting consequences of having the whole Elrond and Elros twin thing, where Elros, uh, the brother who chooses humanity, becomes the one who is the forefather of you know of 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 Aragorn and of the kings of Numenor and the kings of Gondor. Um, so he's the one from whom this noble strain among the humans um, has, uh, you know, which is sort of what he's alluding to here. Um, you know, in, in, in the glory and beauty of the elves and in their fate, full share had the offspring of elf and mortal. Um, so, yeah, so, I mean, that, that, that share in the glory and beauty of the elves is passed down to this one line of humans, um, the, the kings of Numenor and then the kings of Gondor and then ultimately to Aragorn. But then at the same time, in parallel, you have Elrond himself, the twin brother of the dude who is the forefather of this entire line. So he is the, the living relic of that same, of that same thing, like that which the one line is descended from. You know, he still, he still is and he is still hanging out the living connection back to that back to that older tradition, which is not just an ancestral or ancient tradition and legend, but for him living memory. And that, therefore, is what we see at the end of the Third Age, at the end of the, at the, end of the, the Lord of the Rings, when Elrond and Goadriel uh, set sail uh, and go into the West. Um, remember that reference at the end of uh it, it's it's in the it's in the appendices of uh the of the return of the king when it talks about uh, Celeborn finally um uh, he goes and he, he lives at 
Rivendell for a while after Coadriel leaves, and then eventually he takes ship, and with him goes the last living memory of the Elder Days in Middle-earth. The last living memory, that's the key. There are still memories, there are still legends, there are still books, um, Bilbo's books of lore that are handed down, which eventually become uh, essentially the Silmarillion, but but the last living memory is gone. So that's who Elrond is. Um, and and his, so his significance in this is definitely he is like the bridge to the Third Age. Um, so I think that's why he gets such a central significance there, su- such a, a, a central emphasis at the end of that, at the end of that chapter. A.R. and Dill and Elwing and Elrond, their child. Um, I mean, it's it just, I mean, I mean, forget Arwen. I mean, Elros. I mean, they had two children, right? Elrond is only one of their children. So we're really, we're really choosing favorites here. Um, but I think that that's, it's, again, I think, I think it's, it's pretty clear why, because we're not, we're not talking about Elros yet, because Elros means Numenor and that whole story. And that's a different story. And we'll get to that. Um, but Elrond is the one who is that living link. Um, Let's see, Brandon had a question. I know that he doesn't have a mic. Um, um, so, let's see, he had a question about the relationship between men in the West um, and the travel of men into the West. Uh, is that right, Brandon? Yeah. So, um, and I think, you know, in a sense, this is one way of opening up again the men and Valar relationship topic that is looking at that from the other end. Um, the men... They have a different relationship with the Valar. Um, they fear the Valar rather than love them, and yet they're drawn into the West. Um, and I think that that's that that's really that that's a really crucial thing. Um, almost everything that is almost all good people are westward oriented, um, and we see this is true even in the Lord of the Rings, um, e- even in the Third Age. You've got the, you know the whole. Lord of the Rings takes place in the north and the west of Middle-earth, and you've got the whole expanse to the south, Harad, and the, uh, the lands to the east, where the, the Lord of the Rings map just stops, but there's all of that land out there to the east, which is which is unmarked and unlabeled and unmapped, and we just know that it vaguely it's this... Um, it's this large, huge land which is pretty much under Sauron's dominion, and the men are coming and serving in his armies and everything. Um, so it's uh, it's 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 there's there's all of this terrain out there. But the further you go, the more it's just like that Sauron's dominion out there. Um, the the those who are the the further west you go, the more likely you are to find people. Um, to, who who are who are who are good and faithful, and you can even see this is used as a kind of shorthand. Um, uh, you know, there is no more hope in the West. Like we have trusted in the West, the West has failed," uh, says Saruman. Um, that's, you know, that, that's not only just a reference, a simple reference to the Valar, or a simple reference to Valinor, but it becomes even kind of, it seems to me, a sort of a broader idea. Joe, go ahead. I was going to say, uh, maybe men could feel they were connected to something bigger. And, uh, I mean, so they, they sought whatever was closest to that. And, uh, and technically, that's Iluvatar, but um, they were taught to fear death thanks to Morgoth. So, I mean, it was hard for them to understand that what they were seeking, they would really reach after death. So instead, maybe that's why they were trying to make it to the rest of the valley because they thought, ooh, this is what we're really seeking. And uh, they just it was hard for them to understand that death was really what they needed to find that. 
So maybe that's why they were trying to get there, because it could feel they had this connection with something big and good, but they just didn't, they just weren't quite on the mark. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great point, Joe. Um, I think that um, we can see the lives of men are marked from the beginning, we're told, with this desire, this desire that they can't satisfy, this desire for they don't really know what and which they never really satisfy. And, um, you know, we'll come back to this again when we actually meet men, that is, when they when they enter Beleriand and become characters in the story. They'll get to Beleriand and they're like, congratulations, you've reached the West. This is the westernmost part of the continent. Uh, your quest is over. And basically they're like, uh, okay, what we were looking for isn't here, but we don't really know what we're looking for. They seem kind of, in a sense, to be looking for Valinor. Um, but, Joe, I think you're absolutely right. What we know about men is, in the end, where their real home is, where their real destiny is, the, the thing which really will satisfy them is elsewhere. It's not here at all. It's not even in Valinor. Um, so that is, I think, a very important, however, a very important aspect of, of humans that we can see from the beginning. They, they're seeking for something, and the light it, you know, the light in the West is the thing which seems to them closest to that thing that they're looking for. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I think I think that that's definitely something that we need to keep in mind when we are thinking about the relationship between um, between the elves and the Valar. Um, okay, let's see. Let's see, John, you wanted to uh, uh, talk about man's relationship with the sun. Let's talk about the sun. Uh, yes, I wanted to um, talk about especially the symbolic meaning behind the introduction of the sun as basically the icon of men. How we see for the first time, you know, we have heard of the elves before associated with the twilight as previously discussed. But with men, we're seeing basically a light whose basically radiance is thought to be so brilliant that even the eyes of the children can't look at it for too long, for an extended period of time. So for me, this brings into focus a new ideology of sense that mankind is of the world. We see, you know, the moon as being far more dimmer and seeming more distant. The light of the sun is, you know, the, the light force that gives life in the end. It seems to me almost like an extension earlier of almost like the fire of Iluvatar, in this case the fire of the trees, now brought really home in this new sense of awesome light which can only truly be felt with the coming of men. It seems like almost as though fate or perhaps Iluvatar himself has ordained for basically this moment to take place with the awakening of men. Also, I wanted to bring up, um, along with this, uh, the relationship with man to water. The mm-hmm. idea that, you know, Ulmo still remembers uh, mankind and, you know, the exiled Noldor and elves. And we see this connection with nature still present in uh, mankind, but slightly different. You know, we'll see them later called uh, the unfriends. Yes. The, the elves, which I, I believe I, it's such an excellent phrase. It's not grammatically correct, of course, but it brings to mind this relationship with the outside world, which is both similar and dissimilar to the lords of the Eldalie and the Mordequendi. So I'm sure that's uh, enough to, to go on for now. But you know, <laughs> yeah. I always found this chapter 
quite interesting. It's it's quite short, you know, but there's so much to it. I, I remember I was clearing with uh, Laura Burkholz whether this was actually the section I was kind of unsure at first. And when I was going through it, another, um, you know, moment in the um, in a different reading of the text from the Library of Congress, um, I noticed that the emphasis, especially on the sun uh, and the idea of the water, struck me first. Because before, if we return to the earlier chapters, remember mm -hmm. when we were talking about the hiding of Valinor, I think someone brought up the excellent conception, as mentioned in the text, that the Valar were hoarding um, the, the light of the two trees. Yeah. Laurelin and Tilperion in huge vats along with water. Here we see the light in the water once again, except in a, a new and uh, interesting form. Yeah, no, yeah, it's that's pretty much it. Yeah, it's true. No, you're you're, you're right, John. There's a lot there. Um, uh, let me start <clears throat> by going back to the um, to the 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 really their relationship with the sun, and I'll just sort of throw something else in there too, which is <clears throat> what I think is so fascinating about the way that their names. That is, this is in the list of 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 names that they're called. Um, on page 103, and uh, let's see, and they named them the usurpers, the strangers, and the inscrutable, the self-cursed, the heavy-handed, the night-fearers, the children of the sun. Um, you know, and I, I, that list always makes me think like, which of these things is not like the other? You know, I, 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 wait a second. Um, the 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 usurpers, the strangers, the inscrutable, the self-cursed, the heavy-handed, the night fears, th those aren't those aren't good things. The children of the sun. So so wait, is that a bad thing like like the other things? Um, yeah, it's uh, it's 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 a fascinating list. Um, let's see, uh, Mike. I think you wanted to talk about the list since I'm on this subject. Why don't I let you talk about it too? Is it time for style time? I feel like it's time for style time. It's always time for style time. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I just, I, I love that sentence. I think it's the coolest sentence in this, uh, in the chapter. I love the fact that the names of the men start spilling out faster and more furiously as that sentence goes along. Like first they're defined in the two languages, but by the end of the sentence, they're, and they're getting more negative as you read them. They're just sort of one after the other, uh, coming in more rapid succession. My reading of that sentence was that Tolkien wanted to, to give you a, another view of the uh, breakdown of the relationship between men and elves. I think in the final paragraph that begins in After Days, when the two races became estranged, he lays out, you know, uh, the relationship... Uh, in the after days, and then he he finishes up and talks about the relationships in the early days, and I think the the sequencing of the names here is just his way of giving you that same information in a more condensed format. The first sets of names seem to be the more polite and respectable <laughs> polite names yes. that the elves had for the men in the early days when they were were allies and akin, and then those names at the final part of that sentence that are you know sort of come in that final string reflect the estrangement but uh i think that sentence is terrific <laughs> yeah yeah it's really it's it's true polite is a perfect way to say it. the atani they were named uh by the eldar the second people well that's pretty neutral right nobody's going to be offended by the second people certainly they were uh 
They call them the Hildor, the followers. Well, that's a little bit more slanted. The afterborn. Yeah, okay, okay, you were born first. We get it, we get it. The sickly, the mortals, the usurpers, the strangers, the inscrutable. Um, yeah, yeah. Dave, go ahead. Yeah, um, I'm just adding more on top. I'm just adding on to the pile. Uh, cause <laughs> I, I really love that sentence, too. In fact, I, <clears throat> I, uh, when I was on a run listening to uh, Martin Shaw's uh, recording of this book, I kind of like rewound and re-listened to that sentence multiple times. Um, and I was really struck, too, by, by what you were just pointing out, that they get progressively more negative <laughs> as they go. Although, you know, I guess maybe Children of the Sun's not, like, in and of itself is bad. But since it follows right after Night Fears, it's sort of, it, it certainly sounds somewhat derogatory. Like, you know, these guys are kind of, oh, they're scared of the dark. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, of course, this seems a little hypocritical, right? I mean, we remember the elves in Quivienen were terrified uh, of, of of the shadows and the dark, you know, the, the, the one who comes in the dark and takes you away and makes you into orcs. Uh <clears throat> but uh but anyway now we're you know now we're 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 all high and mighty about that i guess and i wonder i mean some of these i wonder like why do they i mean i guess why do they call them self-cursed and heavy-handed that that would seem to do uh, maybe those are names that maybe they didn't make up all these names right away maybe these are names that developed in time as they had further experiences with um uh with men and it and it makes me think of um Arwen uh her comments to um um Aragorn when he's on his deathbed and she sort of says that like you know in sort of in her relative youth that she sort of scorned men uh but only now you know going through the experience of Aragorn dying does she finally understand um uh you know sort of what what their experiences are like and maybe why they are the way they are but anyway i i guess the names maybe they didn't make up all these names right away like some of the some of the children of the sun and things like that maybe they they would have come up earlier but some of these later ones heavy-handed self-cursed i mean it seems like like where would they come up with those except you know maybe after turin and some other people and they have direct experience yeah yeah no that's a good point and i'm glad you brought up that that uh quote from arwen i think that's really interesting and actually uh, I, i'll even i'll even read that um uh now, she's referring to the story of the Numenorean, so of course, obviously, this would be better after we talked about Numenor, but still, um, you know, she says, uh, till now I, not till now have I understood the tale of your people and their fall. As wicked fools, I scorned them, but I pity them at last. Um, so yeah, I mean, we see, as wicked fools, I scorned them. We do get there, I think, a genuine glimpse of the elvish perspective on on the Numenorians in particular and men in general, right? What's wrong with these people? Um, why why are they the way they are? Now she understands, um, whereas before she recognizes now that she was just ignorant before. And I think that here too in this list of names, um, those those two that you point to particularly that is self cursed and heavy handed. Um, are definitely the ones which are kind of which which I think are most conspicuous. The others, you know, like the sickly and the usurpers, the strangers, the inscrutable, all of those names actually say more about the elves than they say about the men, right? 
Right. That, that's sort of describing how the elves perceive the men's being. You know, that's sort of describing the fact that they're mortal, the fact that elves just don't get them. But the, the self-cursed and heavy-handed, those are ascribing to them, like, you know, bad behavior. Right, right, right. Or at least, with heavy-handed, I would say at least clumsiness. Um, yeah. You know, a lack of a lack of of delicacy, and I don't mean delicacy of sensibility, but rather like delicacy of touch. Um, uh, that is, they're all that they're they're in a hurry and they do things quickly and rashly and clumsily, um, which of course, obviously, they're going to when they only have a few decades to do it. Don't have it. Don't have centuries in which to gain wisdom to figure out how to do it better, and are gonna be likelier to be blundering around and making mistakes. Um, so yeah, they're sure they're heavy-handed. Um, self-cursed is interesting, and of course, here we get back. Elizabeth, I think, to the point that you were making earlier about um, the kind of the, the, the echoes, the still sort of faint echoes um, that we get of unoriginal sin concept um, with with men. There is something about them. Um, they do just screw up a lot. You know, I mean, they, they mess things up for themselves <laughs> quite a bit. Um, and, uh, and so, so yeah, so the elves perceive that they're self-cursed. One of the, two other things that I would say about this list, one is if ever we needed, you know, evidence or reminder that this book was written by elves and from the elvish perspective, here it is, right? I mean, I mean, this list is so plainly, um, elvish slanted, uh, and I don't just mean like biased towards the elves, but, um, but written from within their understanding, um, or rather, you know, sort of testifying to their lack of understanding. But the the second thing that I would say about it is again that that final contrast between the night fears and the children of the sun, um, <clears throat> and that I think is a really fascinating thing. I don't think that children of the sun is supposed to be uh, sort of a bad or insulting thing, even though it comes at the end of this long list of questionable descriptors. But um, but it does certainly, when put right next to night fears, it makes me think of the orcs, except in reverse, right? Um, it, as as we saw, both Morgoth and his creatures, when the sun rises, they're terrified of the sun, and they always have a problem with the sun. Orcs always will have a problem with the sun. Uh, remember, Treebeard explains this in The Two Towers. It is a sign of the things that came in the great darkness that they can't abide the sun, Treebeard explains. Um, and so, yeah, they, they were, they're dark creatures. They are made for the dark. And the sun, the sun, uh, you know, post-dates their programming, right? They, they, can, they, they were not designed to handle sunlight. The humans are the flip side of that. They're the children of the sun. They woke when the sun woke. They don't remember the darkness. Um, again, the, the remembering, um, remembering Tom Bombadil's phrase, I remember the dark under the stars when it was fearless, right? They don't remember fearless darkness. They're children of the sun. They are native to light. And so to them, night, darkness, is an anomaly. That's the thing that they're not programmed for they're programmed for sunlight um and they don't know how to handle darkness so they are so they are night fearers even more and in a different way than the elves uh were night fearers by the by the shores of Quivianen. um brandon uh reminds us on the children of the sun thing um the scene with uh uh gandalf and theoden 
Oh, the, the when he when he brings him uh, outside to see the light. The cure, the, yeah, the cure for his his ailments and his depression is not an exorcism or hitting him in the head with his magic staff, but right. he just basically taking him outside and saying, "Hey, look, the sun's still up." Yeah. Yes, it is not so dark here, says <laughs> Theoden. Right? Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. Um, that's how. I mean, even even thinking all of that. All of that persistent language, you know, the Sauron language with the shadow and everything the shadow is passing, um, that's, you know, light for, for, for humans, from a human perspective, light is, is, you know, light and sunlight in particular, that is the norm. That is the, that is the, um, that is, that is goodness. Um, whereas the darkness, for elves, it's not like elves are pro-darkness. They will speak of the dark and the shadow as being a bad thing. Um, but they, too, remember the dark under the stars when it was fearless, at least to some extent. Um, and they are not afraid of the night time. They are not afraid of starlight. They don't consider starlight darkness, um, uh, whereas humans seem to do so. Uh, Mike, you wanted to add something else? Just finally, I also got stuck with that children of the sun term as the final term. I really wanted that to be a term of sort of final understanding between the elves in relation to men. And it doesn't really add up, I think, in some of the ways that you've mentioned. I think the correct term for men is in that first part of the paragraph where they say that, you know, the the first rising of the sun, the younger children of Iluvatar awoke. So it's not the children, men are not the children of the sun, they are properly understood as the younger children of Iluvatar. But in the very end, the elves, in naming the men, in the final analysis, don't name them that. They name them all these other names, and finally the children of the sun, which leaves me with a feeling like there is sort of a unresolved jealousy or misunderstanding at the very end. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, exactly. I mean, and the jealousy thing. I mean, usurpers? Hello, usurpers? Remember, that was the lie of Morgoth to 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 Feanor that Feanor was like unconsciously uh, spreading that is not thinking that he was ventriloquizing Morgoth um, when he, when Feanor makes his speech you know no other race shall oust us right uh, that's that's wicked thinking to think of the of the men as usurpers that's what Morgoth was trying to deceive them into then, doing in order to build right, rivalry. Right, and then in the in the next page over, they're accusing men of usurping the sunlight. So it's yeah, it's there. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, that's I do think that you can see some genuine, um, not just the elvish perspective, but like elvish hangups <laughs> there. Dave, go ahead. I was going to say, uh, does that or should we understand that to mean that there are sort of hints in here of some of Morgoth's lies and corruption that the the um, the elves, whoever it is that's writing these stories down, they're still not even free of, of Morgoth's of the, the sort of pollution of Morgoth as they they've they've um, assimilated some of the language that he taught them. I think that's possible, though I I don't think we need necessarily see that name in this list or any even even the others in this list as a kind of unconscious uh, act. You know that like the person who wrote this was himself sinning. You know in in thinking that way, but rather it is. I I think it would be possible to read it as sort of an honest admission 
on the part of the writer. Like, I will confess that this... Because remember, this is a list of the things that they were called. And so some of these... Presumably, some of the things they're going to be called are they're going to be called some things by bad people, you know, in bad circumstances, right? Um, so some of these things might have been, you know, might have been names given to men by, like, you know, Carinthier or, like, you know, one of the jerks. Um, so it's possible that he's basically he's saying, look, I'm going to report the bad with the good. You know, it's true that, like, among elves... These are the various names, and that you know that the 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 author, the teller of the story, might not be proud of all of these names, but he, I'm I, I'm gonna I'm gonna come clean and say these are the things which which elves have called humans. Um, uh, I, I think it, it, it's possible to read it that way rather than the speaker kind of unconsciously falling into this same deception there. Um, but it's possible. Yeah, I mean. I, I guess I, I didn't mean it quite like that. I just sort of more, I wonder if the elves would call them usurpers if Morgoth hadn't first told that them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, they're definitely, I think, no. I mean, that, I think, well, I say definitely, I think. That's pretty pretty much covering my bases there. I don't think so. At least we're, to, we're told, we're told that uh, he, he planted that, um, but I don't think that we're supposed to be thinking that, you know, golly, if it hadn't ever been for Morgoth, all of the elves, like no elf would ever have sinned or done or thought anything like wrong. Anything against them, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I mean, of course, I guess you could say all of, you know, all of this evil stuff comes from the discord of Melkor and the music in the first place, but... Uh, but well, I think that's an oversimplification. I just think, I just, I was struck by that. I don't know why I didn't even think of it when I was first reading it, but looking at it now, I sort of thought, I remembered back to that, and I wondered, like, we're sort of supposed to be thinking about the echoes of, of Morgoth. I mean, um, this is jumping ahead, but there's a, there's a uh, sentence in next chapter where Morgoth sort of reflecting on the Noldors arriving in, in, in Middle Earth uh, and you know he's gotten his butt kicked a couple times but at the same time he has this gleeful thought where he realizes that, that the sort of the, the seeds of, of discord and disagreement amongst the different groups of elves and between elves and men is already there. He like looks and sees like hey alright you know all those lies and things that I told and all this all those things I set in motion are you know I'm getting my payoff from my early from my plant and i'm just wondering uh you know like if we're if we should see that here as well that it's not that he he's the root of all evil and they wouldn't have done anything bad if it wasn't for him but he nevertheless he had an impact or an influence on them and that even the most noble elves maybe um don't escape that as good and, and as noble and as high as they might be in the later ages even after he's been imprisoned maybe there's still there's still echoes of his corruption throughout all you know all creation and maybe in each individual yeah yeah no i mean i definitely think that that's yeah that's certainly possible and um you know i think you know there's that wonderful sentence you know he who sows lies will not lack of a harvest um i think that was back in valinor um so yeah no i i that's um we, we can certainly see see uh the implications of that um yeah, and I think. Uh, oh wait, before we move off from the sun, Brandon, you made a comment about um, uh, a Hobbit comment. I think um, about the Daisy Riddle. Yeah, um, I know you. You've got no mic. You wanna. You. You, you wanna. Um, 
spell that out a little bit more? I mean, I remember the the etymology, of course. Uh, Daisy comes from the Anglo-Saxon phrase, the day's eye. Uh, And so the the, the sun being the eye of the the day. Um, And, you know, if you think about how that riddle goes and the the eye and the blue face and the eye and the and the green face and the one eye in low place and the other in high place um um so that the concept of the sun is the eye um which is which is really fascinating because um uh, this is in the riddles in the dark chapter in the hobbit this is the this is and and interestingly this is the riddle that bilbo makes up completely on the spot and uh and it's you know, so I, I I think the most the most Tolkienian of all of these riddles. He made up he 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 made up or at least made up the wording of all of them. Um, but he uh, but this is this is a this is a philologist's riddle. Um, so uh, um, so I mean it's 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 uh, it's hard not to see this as being sort of uh, sort of specially Tolkienian in some sense. But. Um, but yeah, so no, that idea of the, that idea of the of of the sun as the eye of the world, and um, and yeah, you know, that's it, it is interesting to think about that in connection with the with the the men being children of the sun, um, actually kind of bringing the discussion back full circle uh, or circling back a while to the neg- the apparent neglect of the Valar and them sort of are you know are they not paying attention? Well, if they're children of the sun. And the sun is 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 the eye of the world, then um, you know the eye of day. No, they're being watched over. By definition, they've been watched over since day one. They've been they're watched. They're being watched over by the sun, um, and this sort of the sun as emblem of this of uh, especially thinking again of the the way that the sun comes off in the sun and moon chapter. Uh, you know, this is this is the strategy. This is a strategic move by the Valar to counter Morgoth. You know, the sun is set in a sense like to to guard Middle Earth uh, and help to protect them. Um, so, so yeah, they're the children of the sun. They're not, they're not totally neglected. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Thanks Brandon for pointing that out. I think I I wasn't, I I wasn't at all thinking of that riddle, but I think, I I think it's a really neat connection. Um, let's see. Uh, just, uh, let's see, just a couple more, I think. Um, let's see. Joe, you had a question about Elrond and Elros, but I think we're going to have to wait on that one. Um, we're not going to have enough data yet to answer the question about the choice given to Elrond and Elros. We should wait until, well, until the choice is given. And as we'll see, not just to them, the choice is going to be given to A.R. and Elwing as well. Um, but you'll have to wait till we get to the A.R. and chapter for that, I think. Um, Jordan, you wanted a, a question about the Halls of Mandos? Um, well, sort of. We kind of covered it in the text. The idea that the halls of Mandos, I guess, are so large, and there are people that are leaving, like Glorfindel, and yet they don't know if men are there or not, seems bizarre, but sort of in our little text conversation, we discussed that either there's a separate chamber with men, and anytime anyone asks about it, Mandos has some pithy response, and they can't get a straight answer out of him, or <laughs> that the thing is like a hall of mirrors where no one can see anyone else. It's, you have no idea what's happening there because it's just basically Mandos's personality in hall form. <laughs> yeah, I mean the they're called the halls of awaiting, you know, and there is a sense in which I, I think that some of the times that the halls of Mandos are describing, it does sound a bit um 
solitary. That is, you know, this is a time where you go, this is, this is quiet time. This is alone time. Um, you know, this is reflection time. And, uh, uh, but yeah, the halls of waiting for men, um, which are, which are plainly purgatorial, ultimately, that this seems to be, uh, you know, the waiting place, uh, on the road to wherever they're going after. Um, but, um, but yeah, this is, uh, uh, and I think thinking about Mandos in geographical terms, um, that is sort of imagining a floor plan for Mandos and trying to guess, uh, you know, uh, like the, uh, the square footage of the halls of Mandos is, I think, ultimately not going to be very profitable. That is, sure, they must be very big, but then on the other hand, we're not talking about bodies here anyway. Um, nobody in Mandos has a body, do they? No, I don't think so. No, nobody in Mandos has a body. That's where spirits go. And so, like, we're not really talking about the same kind of geospatial relations as we're talking about, um, you know, in, like, a boarding house. So uh, so I, I do think that, you know, the halls of Mandos could be quite small, theoretically. Um, I don't think they take up a lot of room. But certainly, um, they're, they're, we're told... You know, we're told that there's a firewall there between uh, between where where the, the the humans are, where the humans go, and where the elves are, um, which of course is one of the things which kind of adds to the mystery for elves of humans and human destiny, because of course there there are those among the Eldar and Valinor who've been to Mandos. I mean, they can report back on Mandos, but they st- even they still don't know um, because they they haven't gotten a glimpse over even even into what's going on with the humans over there in Mandos. Not to mention the fact that, of course, they, they needless to say, don't know where they go afterwards. Um, let's see, Dave, you had a, a, a dwarf-related question, though I'm suspecting, I'm suspecting you might be thinking of a different chapter, because I don't think the dwarves were mentioned in this chapter, but, um, but we can check. What were you thinking about dwarves? You said something about dwarves. I know you did. Something about dwarving, dwarf stealing treasure, or something like that. Oh, we we've long since moved beyond, way past that point. Okay. <clears throat> Mostly, okay. I was just when we were talking about the uh, early drafts of the Hobbit and the fact oh, that, right. that, that the Elven King might indeed be single. I, I was just pointing out that there's that line where they say that the dwarves and in the and the um, wood elves never got along, and you know they each had their different stories about why, and it had something to do with you know the elves said it was because they stole the the Elven King's treasure and the dwarves said it's because the elven king didn't pay them. I think that's right. And I was, I was just thinking, like, well, that is that is exactly Thingol's story. So I'm wondering if that was a uh, vestigial um, uh, sentence that's left over from the early drafts where the elven king is indeed Thingol. Yeah, or at least you can see the close connection there. Because even in the later mm-hmm. versions, um, Thranduil is... Is is a Sindar. I mean, you know, he's related back to the people of Doriath. Um, so, um, so yeah, even 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 when he becomes not Thingol, it's still they still remember it perfectly well. Um, and that is the place where uh, where where the grudge between dwarves and elves comes from. Um, so yeah, we'll we'll see that we'll see that a little bit later on. Um, uh, okay, good. I think um, Mike, go ahead. I was going to ask you this at the beginning in terms of de- defining terms. This isn't defining a term, but the the question, who knows where men go 
after the time of waiting, and Tolkien says, only Mandos under Iluvatar save Manway knows. Wait, I, I read that wrong. Mandos under Iluvatar alone save Manway knows. So yeah. what does that mean? Okay, that Mandos is the only one who knows where humans go, except Manway. He knows too. But Mandos, other than Manway, Mandos is the only one who knows. Uh, that's the way I understand that sentence. But even there, um, it's not obvious that Mandos or Manway, either one of them, has any kind of sort of direct access to humans and where humans are because humans leave the circles of the world and the Valar are bound to the circles of the world as long as the world lasts. So um, so in this way, I think that you know, the, the humans do move outside of the reach and outside of the knowledge even of Mandos. But Mandos is there to see them off wherever it is that they do go. Uh, so he knows about it. Um, even if he doesn't access it or even if it's not under, you know, it's sort of, you know, they pass out of his jurisdiction. But, but, but he escorts them to the border, so he knows. And, and, and Manway knows too. Um, so that's how, that's how, that's how I understand that sentence. Well, good. Um, I, I, I think, uh, you know, we've, uh, we've, we've, we've had a, a good discussion of our, of our two and a half pages of text here this evening. Any final questions that anybody has before we go? No, I just had a question. Um, the, it's the, is the, the Avari that are the elves that never left Quivianan? Yes, that's right. Okay, I always get the names mixed up. Do we hear about them anymore, or is this, this the final reference to them? This is going to be one of the final references to them. Um, I, I'm sort of thinking forward. There might be, there might be one or two stray references. But this is, I think, the closest we're going to get to meeting them as characters. Um, yeah, they're not going to, they're not going to come up a whole lot more. Uh, because again, everybody's moving west. When, uh, humans awake, uh, way out in the east, you know, we briefly pan over to the east to Hildorian, um, but then the men are going to come west, and then we're only going to be concerned in this story with the men that are in the far west, uh, you know, where there aren't any Avari. So, um, so no, the, the Avari aren't going to really come into it again much more. This is going to be, I think this, I, I do believe this is the most we'll see of the Avari, um, for the rest of the time. Yeah, I just have always wondered what happened to the Avari, and I wonder if the blue wizards are out hanging with the Avari somewhere. Uh, maybe, maybe, uh, we don't know. I mean, when we say that it's out in the East, uh, you know, that they're out in the East, is that still the East, the East of Middle Earth? Um, you know, of Third Age Middle Earth, which is where the Blue Wizards went? Possibly, possibly. Uh, I, I, you know, one can certainly imagine the, the, the Blue Wizards trying to recruit, uh, you know, assistance with, um, uh, with the Avari out there, but that would be, you know, if I were writing that story, I would be, I would certainly be tempted to go there, but yeah, we, we, we don't know. Um, Dave, go ahead. I just wanted to comment on the, um, sort of, um, uh, positive, optimistic upswing to the end. I really like the last paragraph, uh, where it talks about, you know, even though after the triumph of Morgoth, which actually that's very interesting, what exactly is the triumph of Morgoth? But, um, I like the fact that it finishes by saying sort of, in the dawn of years, elves and men were allies and held themselves akin. And there were some among men that learned the wisdom, yada, yada, yada. I just like, I like the idea that they, they sort of pay lip service to the fact that even though they become estranged in later 
later days. Um, at, at the beginning of things, things were pretty good. These guys, they thought of themselves as akin. They thought of themselves as brothers. They, they were allies in the war against Morgoth. And it's sort of a nice sort of, you know, hopeful note, at least. Because, of course, the reader knows that we're still in the midst of those early days. In fact, we're sort of earlier than them. So, uh, so we get to, we get to, you know, we know that we're about to launch into sort of the heyday of elves and men working together. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that, therefore, one thing, of course, that this certainly helps with is to, um, is to put into its appropriate context the last alliance between elves and men, um, at the end of the Second Age, uh, you know, with Elendil and Gilgalad. Um, of course, in the context of the Lord of the Rings, <clears throat> the Battle of the Last Alliance, um, as of course, uh, is done in the film, it's the, it's the beginning, right? I mean, it's like, that's, that's the origin. Um, that's where, uh, that's where everything starts, in a sense. And so, it's tempted to see that as like, well, it's like the first and last alliance, right? I mean, we don't see anything else other than that. But the fact that it's called the last alliance points to, um, this, this older, this ancient tradition. And, uh, the last alliance between, between uh between Gondor you know or basically between the Numenorians and uh and and the and the elves you know it's 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 last of course not only because it's the last time they're really going to team up like this but of course it's the last time they can team up like this because it's the last time they're going to be around as equals it's the last alliance between the Numenorians and the Noldor because there aren't going to be many more Noldor after this and there aren't going to be any Numenorians <laughs> after this pretty soon so um so anyway, it's it's, um, but I do think that it's important to see it in this context that when Elendil and Gilgalad get together and say, "Hey, we're allies, we're akin, let's join together and fight against Sauron," that this is a return to this ancient and far better system. Um, that you know, th- this is stepping backwards across time, across all of those lies and deceptions which have divided men and elves, and back to how to back. To what were really the good old days, um, and I think it's important to to sort of see that here and see that pattern being established, um, and this is why that's why the last alliance was such a big deal, um, because they were they were they were doing it right again in ways that it hadn't been done right for thousands of years, um, even when we see in other mo- in other times in the Second Age the Numenorians working alongside. Um, the elves, it still doesn't really happen like that. The Numenorians, um, yeah, it's just their partnership is not really the same. Um, but but there we can see it. So so I, I do agree. You know, this is what we're. Uh, that last paragraph is really neat, and that's why I think it's also really cool that we end with Arondil and Elwing and Elrond. Um, that is the actual joining of those two. Elrond in his person represents the you know he he didn't just take part in the last alliance he is the last alliance you know by by his nature by 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 his you know in his genes he is the alliance of elves and men um and i you know i so i think that that's a really again another way in which elrond serves as a kind of focal point as a kind of bridge and i think it's i think that's uh that's pretty cool yeah 
Yeah, but that's true. That the early men are so, the, er, the early men are so cool because they they don't have all this baggage that they inherit from from the downfall of N- Numenor. It seems like there's so much baggage weighing down the the later men, even the high men of like Gondor and even Aragorn. Uh, and these early men, they just they're they don't have all that, and and it seems like the 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 interplay between the two races is uh, it's not weighed down by the long history. So yeah, I, I really I love I love when we get into these early stories of the men and elves interact it's so cool yeah yeah no i agree yeah and the whole the whole self-cursed thing isn't quite so obvious all the time um Mm -hmm. you know at least it won't be for a while there are some of course (laughs) some are more self-cursed than others turin but um but but (laughs) but but yeah in general um we don't we we don't always see that and um yeah no I agree. These these early stories are really cool. Now, having gone here, um, that is, having talked about men, because this is the time of the rising of the sun, and so men have woken up, they're not, of course, going to enter the story still for several chapters. So we're now going to go back for several weeks before we get men again. So the, you know, the chapter, the coming of the men in, to the West, is when they will finally become actual characters in these stories. Um, and all of the you know discussions of this chapter are still sort of largely theoretical. But, uh, but anyway, um, uh, good, good. Well, thanks everybody. That's the end of tonight's session. Join us next time for the chapter entitled of the return of the Noldor. Thanks for listening and farewell wherever you fare. Thanks for listening and Godspeed.